Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk about Tucson, caring sale of two watch brands, small diamonds, and Rob's new book. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in here from New York City, the heart of heartless New York City. <laughs> heartless? No. It's, it's got a big heart, it's, that town. Uh, yes, it's a great town. Beautiful town. It's a great town. I'm in a flurry of airline flight hunting, searching. I'm coming in soon. It's been all about travel this year. I must say, 22 has gotten off to a good start. So I'm in New York will be kind of the highlight of my spring, I must say. I believe we're getting rid of the mask mandate so we can actually talk in a non-awkward, weird way. That'll be uh, fun. It will be fun. It's going to be like weird and odd, but all good. I mean, listen, to be honest, I've had my own mask mandate lifted personally. I mean, not not that I break laws or anything or break mandates, you know, the government sets. But yeah, I, I think uh, we're all getting pretty comfortable with this idea of uh, things easing off and life going back to something. I'm so used to it. I just wear it all the time. I just put it on kind of as a matter of habit. I mean, it's not the biggest deal in the world. So uh, pretty much every time I go out, I wear it. But I could certainly adjust to life without it. Yeah, I think it's probably like a little security blanket for people in some ways, you know, just something that is a ritual at this point. But luckily, you will have the choice to keep it on should you want to. So nobody's going to tell you not to. Well, speaking of masks and so on, I was just in Tucson for the gem shows all last week. Tucson in general, in the shows inside, in the convention center at the AGTA gem fair at the GGX show at the tent it was almost exclusively people wearing masks people were very diligent about them so that was great because I think I'm sure a number of people were concerned about that heading into the shows you know there's a huge international presence in Tucson well typically there is this year it was much more of an American show which everybody expected and predicted you didn't see the Chinese buyers or really a lot of Asian buyers in general I think more owing to the fact that they would need to quarantine on their way home so the Traffic did seem lighter, but of course, as we saw with JCK Las Vegas in August and some of the other shows, you know, you don't go to these things unless you really are intending to buy. I mean, all those looky-loos and the kind of people that just walk around looking for information, they wouldn't have needed to come this year. You can just get that stuff online or you can sit it out. But if you're really intent on buying and you are in need of restocking, surely you went and you did buy. And in general, I think dealers had a really great show. There was a ton of interest in very rare and unusual stuff. Stones, and I made it a mission to kind of hunt those down. I was specifically looking for the most expensive gems at the fair. And I found one that I think quite legitimately could be called the show's most expensive gem. I mean, that's a, a hard thing to prove because there are countless, countless stones in Tucson. And it really depends on how you calculate value. But the stone I have in mind, any guesses as to what it might be? Uh, no, not really, no. So it was a blue sapphire, a Burma blue sapphire with 
with a coveted royal blue designation, according to a couple of different European gem labs. And uh, pre, pre-coup. Pre-coup, yes. You know, the provenance of these things can be a little difficult to tease out. I think it was a piece that had been in a vault for a long, long time. But here's the kicker. It wasn't just a Burma blue sapphire or even just a Burma royal blue sapphire. It was an 80.26 carat Burma sapphire. Nice. I mean, you could swim in this thing. It was a legit swimming pool, you know, almost flawless. They don't have that clarity designation in color. Well, I don't think it is, but in terms of the crystal, it just looked so clear and virtually flawless. An incredible stone. I can't reveal the wholesale value, but I can say that the retail value would very much be north of 10 million. It could even be considerably more than that. So that's a $10 million stone at retail, and it was quite something to behold and just quite something to be standing there in the midst of these gem shows where there's, you know, rocks in every direction for miles because there are, you know, dozens of shows in town. And to think you may be looking at the one that is really the top of the heap there, the pier- the top of the pyramid in terms of value. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like amazing. I mean, I assume that was, was that at the show? It wasn't like at some dude's table, right? I mean, I assume it was... It was at the booth. It was at the the Ijadi Gem booth. They are specialists in blue sapphire based in New York. They're at AGTA. And um, from what I understand, they had the stone for some time. I don't know for how long and decided that now is the time to bring it out. And I think that is very much a reflection of the strength of the marketplace, that the market is hungry for rare and fine and unusual gems. Prices are going higher. There's a real sense that these are investment possibilities. So there were lots of really beautiful stones. I saw Padvarajas, of course, and Alexandrites. I saw a gorgeous suite of jade, three stones that totaled something like 2.3 million at retail. So again, it was fun to kind of hunt down these expensive of gems. Of course, that's not your average buy, but I think it was a good strategy for this year when prices are rising. Prices are very strong. Dealers are feeling confident. Wasn't easy to throw out an offer and get a stone. As a non-buyer and non-seller, as merely a witness to these things, it, it was a great time, a good mood. I saw kinds of good friends. I saw Melissa Bernardo, of course, our wonderful managing editor and dear friend, was in town visiting her mom. So we caught up. Mark, Mark Smelzer, our old publisher, was in town. Emily Vessel our wonderful, you know, longtime senior editor. So we got the whole JCK gang, Randy Gewurz, our national sales manager. It's a perfect place to have a reunion. It's just so fun. And not to mention my sister and our good friend, Mark Davidovich, joined me and crashed in my room. So there was great fun to be had and lots of wonderful gems to see and um, just a really good week. So there wasn't a lot of international buyers, a lot of international sellers, I, I would guess. How did that affect things? It was hard to say. American... The AGTA, American Gem Trade Association, is kind of keystone show in Tucson at the convention center. It's largely American dealers, as its name would imply, although there are foreigners who have offices in New York who are members and show at the show. There were a few less booths, and certainly the traffic felt like there were waves of it, but you could see there were days when it was just a little lighter. So that was one impact. GJX, the big tent where most of the international dealers show up, the Brazilians, the guys from Eder Oberstein, various dealers from Asia. I, I 
it wasn't palpable in, in a way. I mean, there, it still felt pretty crowded and pretty lively. I think it's just that there was less competition from the Chinese. It was never a show that felt dominated by foreigners anyway. So it, it wasn't that palpable. It felt pretty good. I think most dealers I spoke to seemed to be doing very well. At the minimum, they were meeting their 2019, 2020 years e- even better. I mean, I spoke to Robert Bentley, who's a really well-known colored stone gemstone dealer based in New York. And he, I think, beat his whole entire 2020 total on the first day of this year. So there were a lot of happy dealers and that translates to a pretty good mood. Were any particular gems hot, like rubies or sapphires? There wasn't a particular talking piece to the show. Some years, you know, there's a new discovery of Ethiopian opals or emeralds. In both cases from Ethiopia, that's happened before and everybody's abuzz talking about, did you see these new gems? There wasn't a new find that got everybody's attention. I think that's a reflection of how mining is still feeling the impact of the pandemic and still hasn't gotten back to the sort of robustness of previous years. Um, I did pop into the Ethical Gem Fair on my first day in Tucson. It closed on February 1st. which is the day that AGTA opened. There was a a fair amount of buyers there. I saw Jennifer Gandia and her sister Christina from Greenwich Street Jewelers had a good long chat with Monica Stevenson, founder of Anza Gems, saw Susan Wheeler, who heads up the Responsible Jewelry Conference. And I wouldn't say that was the talk of the show, but there is certainly a lot more interest in gems that are fully traceable, like the ones that Moyo Gems, which is another Monica Stevenson, another gem company that she's involved in and uses in Anza. These gems that can be traced all the way back to literally the person who mined it, the woman, in fact, who mined it. So there is growing interest in that kind of traceability, but it's still really next to impossible to find outside of a very small venue like the Ethical Gem Fair. I was actually going to ask because right before Tucson, and I I don't know if it was deliberate timing or not, but the State Department put out this thing to remind people to be careful not to source from Myanmar or Burma because of the sanctions against the major gem companies and to have better track of your supply chains to make sure that there's no uh, Myanmar gems in there. When I talk to gem dealers, they're usually pretty cynical about these kind of things. Was anybody talking about that or concerned about that or? Not really. It came up. Most people will say, oh, you know, this is an estate piece we've recut, which may or may not be true. I have no way of telling. There were apparently a lot of big European jewelry houses that were in Tucson with their buying teams, Cartier, Boucheron, you know, Chanel, Louis Vuitton. I can't guarantee it was those houses, but people from, you know, that ilk really. And um, someone did say when I asked about, I can't remember what it was I was looking at, whether it might have been actually the Burma Sapphire that I mentioned at the start, the 80 character, that those houses can't buy the Burma stones. So then I wonder what happens because it does seem like who's going to get an 80 character. It might be a house along the lines of, um, you know, Van Cleef or Boucheron and using it at the center of some gorgeous necklace that they might show during Couture Week, either in January or July in Paris. Not to say there aren't other buyers or potential buyers, but it seems like the brands that are owned by big luxury groups do have to really be careful about where they're sourcing because someone's paying attention. It's not the talk of the show, though, these kinds of bans. I have no idea how they're enforced. Do you? Well, right now, I don't think they are actively enforced. If they were actively enforced, I think 
there would be a big commotion. And I think people would be very scared. It's just a question of how much the government is putting a priority on that. Certainly, if you're a big luxury brand, a lot of it is limiting risk. So you don't want to necessarily take the risk of potentially breaking the law. You can buy a Burmese item that was mined before the military coup last year. You just have to make sure that you have evidence that it was mined before that coup. So if there was an old receipt, and I assume a $10 million item, there probably is some kind of paper trail that should be okay. But the thing is, you have to ask for it and get certain people to sign off on it. So yeah, it's a little more complicated now than it used to be. You know, I think the government, if it really wants to enforce something like this, I think it has to be a little clearer about what it's looking for, what it wants people to do. They'll mention these things like look up the OECD due diligence. I mean, that's, I read that and I fall asleep and I, I barely understand it. I mean, these things are not easy. So I think if they do want people to follow these things, they're going to have to be perhaps a little clearer about what kind of paperwork they're looking for and what kind of steps they want people to take because they're in touch with the industry. So they know the issues and people just want guidance. And the thing is, when there is no guidance, people are just going to do whatever they want. They want people to guide them and to tell them because otherwise it's just too much to try to figure out where every little piece of, for example, lapis, which might've come from the Taliban, where that came from, or, you know, where your jade came from. I mean, it's, these are just very difficult things to track. You know, there is the Patriot Act, and you do have to do a certain amount of due diligence on whoever you buy from, but it's certainly not easy. And I think we could definitely use a little more clarity from the government and the powers that be. I keep wondering if one day not in the not too distant future, we would just be able to have little tags on these things or somehow embed some nano chip that travels from the mine all the way to the store and to the finger and tells you exactly, you know, in a blockchain where this item is. It seems a long way off for scrappy world of colored stones, but maybe not. It's doable. I mean, they'll probably have it for diamonds soon, but there's uh, not necessarily the demand for it right now. That's the thing. I keep wondering so much of this is obviously the industry or government telling the industry what to do and then industry sort of telling consumers what you can and cannot have, but it's very rarely consumers or at least it's maybe a tiny, tiny portion of consumers forcing change the other way around from the bottom up, which is a little disheartening. You want consumers to care more, but you can't force them. Yeah. I mean, I think unless something is is reinforced, people don't necessarily think about it that much. Unless it's top of mind and brought up, it's not something that people necessarily care about. I think you go to a store and you assume most of the stuff there is fine and okay, and that may or may not be true. But uh, unless you're uh, somebody who's really committed, most people don't spend a lot of time researching these things. I don't blame them. I mean, we have limited bandwidth for problems outside of our very own... If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. I guess other news is that Kerrig, which is the big conglomerate, sold two of its most prominent watch brands. And it's it's relatively unusual for conglomerates to sell brands, if I'm not mistaken. So what's your insight on that? 
I'm going to pull up what seems in hindsight like a crystal ball comment. Basically, in late January, January 24th, we all heard the announcement that Caring sold Gerard Perigo and Ulysse Nardin to their management. And the management being comprised of a group called So Wind Group and headed by Patrick Prunio, I believe is the pronunciation. He has been the CEO of both brands, both Gerard Perigo and Ulysse Nardin. For years now, he came from the watch industry, but then he did a stint at Apple. So he's got this cool tech experience on his resume. Really nice guy, very personable. And he has now taken control of both brands. Now I am due to speak to him soon, but Caring has instituted some sort of quiet period, which I believe has to do with investor reports and so on, where he hasn't been able to speak to the media, or at least so I'm told. It's not all that surprising. I spoke to William Rohr who many people know as William Messina. He's a longtime industry veteran of the watch business and was a time zone moderator for years and head of time zone and has since founded his own company called Messina Lab that makes uh, kind of a boutique brand, partners and collaborates with different watchmakers on limited edition models. Really cool, super smart guy, really great insights into the watch business. And his quote was, we'll see brands separating from the four big groups, LVMH, Caring, Richemont and Swatch. There will be pressure from the shareholders to reduce costs and to maximize returns. And a lot of those brands will be much better off as independents. It will take years, if not a decade, for this to happen. But in 2022, we will see the beginning of the deconsolidation. And lo and behold, two weeks later, we get this news about caring. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, I mean, his crystal ball is in you know good working order. So it was cool to see that happen. I think what we've seen, especially over the pandemic, is that the brands that are independently owned, Audemars Piguet, Rolex, Patek Philippe, but even smaller brands, Brands like Oris have performed very well and seem to be beating all kinds of estimates, have these problems of great scarcity where stores are completely devoid of product because there's just none available. That's how much demand you know has risen, also constrained by supplies, which during the pandemic obviously fell short of a typical year's production. And so those brands that are independent or don't have to answer to big giant corporate groups and shareholders have just seemed to perform a lot better and they're more nimble. They can do what they want. They don't have to clear it through 10 levels of management. And I think the watchmakers have just consistently struggled, those that are owned by groups. I mean, I'm not saying every brand that's owned by a group is struggling or has suffered. Some brands inside groups are just left alone to do their thing. You know, they're not really under this deep pressure, but I don't know how Caring operated. Caring has a lot of fashion brands in its stable, mostly fashion brands, Gucci being the prime prize of that group. And Caring's also, to its credit, been extremely extremely progressive in terms of the way it's positioning its sustainability and reporting on it, its transparency, its communication about its various goals in terms of ethics and responsibility. So caring has been a really leader in that space. I would never say that GP and UN were thriving under its ownership. We'll have to see what Patrick has in store and what that means. And I will have more to report in early March or perhaps the next time we speak on what his plans are. This quote that you got about luxury deconsolidating, was he specifically talking about watches or does he think perhaps jewelry brands and other kinds of luxury brands will also start to go on their own? No, he was talking about watches. And I I think watches 
I'd have to really think about what it is that distinguishes the watchmakers under these umbrellas, these corporate umbrellas from the jewelry brands. I think jewelry tends to perform better for these brands. So if you're Richemont, your jewelry sales, whether it's Cartier or Van Cleef, are maybe less complicated. I think there's a lot more room to grow in the jewelry branded space globally. You know, so much of jewelry still is generic that there is a lot of white space for brands to capitalize on that globally. Less so for watches, clearly. There's not a single watch I can think of that's sold as a generic product. So maybe it has to do with that. And so I don't know what might be next. Maybe we'll see something like a, I mean, this would be a big deal, but like if a Jaeger LeColte or a Panerai or Langeson or IWC split off from Richemont. I mean, they were all purchased around 20 years ago, shortly after the turn of the millennium. I think those three, JLC, IWC, and Lange as a trio of brands. So there is a long history of these brands being independent or at least independent of big corporate groups. And so maybe that was an experiment and it worked for the better part of 20 years. And now we see that it's not working anymore. This may be the beginning of a return. I guess the backdrop to all this is that Swiss watch brands have very complicated ownership histories. There are scores of brands that have just been traded and bought and sold. Their names are bought. Sometimes other IP is bought, sometimes not. They're transformed. They live many, many lives or some have. I mean, clearly there are a handful that have, well, Rolex in particular, and Patek Philippe that have always for at least decades have been under the same ownership structure. But most brands go back and forth and kind of reinvent themselves or die under their new owners and then are brought back later and then die again. I mean, it's kind of fascinating to watch these brands and plot out their histories on a timeline because they're hardly straight lines. I mean, what distinguishes a lot of these brands is that they are long-term thinkers. Not that the luxury conglomerates aren't necessarily long-term thinkers, but, you know, if you're Rolex and you see this incredible demand, if you're part of a public company, I would assume the knee-jerk response is, hey, let's just start producing more Rolexes. But of course, that's not necessarily what they're, what they're doing because they have strict quality standards and they tend to limit their production. So, you know, it's all about preserving the brand rather than having to see top line growth year after year after year, which is how a public company operates. And if you're a private company and you don't have to report, you don't have to show growth, you can perhaps plan in a more long-term way. 100%. You you 100% nailed it. That is very much it. Again, you know, 20 years plus of covering watches and it's still shocking to me that there are things to say, but there really are because these companies go through many lives and many different iterations and some don't survive. And it's always a good lesson to, to sort of unpack these things and figure out why not. Now to switch to the world of jewelry, you just wrote a piece about small diamonds, which I rarely think about because they seem almost like afterthought in terms of the kinds of jewels we talk about. What's the news there? Well, they're super hot. Their prices are going up. There's limited supply. And, you know, so many pieces that are sold in the United States use a lot of small diamonds for halos and for pave. And you're just not seeing them on the market right now. And what's interesting is there's also a similar shortage on the lab-grown diamond side. And a lot of people had kind of thought since lab-grown diamonds are cheaper and when you're talking about small diamonds, it's arguable whether it really matters in any sense, whether they're natural or, or lab-grown. A lot of people thought, okay, the Melly industry is just going to be written off. And now it's super, super hot. And what's interesting is, first of all, people are wondering if lab-grown Melly has much of a future. I mean, it is 
is being produced and it is there. If, if you look for it, apparently Signet bought up a lot of uh, lab-grown melee a, a while ago. But people are, are wondering if it has a future in that it's not that profitable and the prices are falling. And in some cases, it's more profitable to produce the naturals. It's simply about dollars and cents. And what's interesting, so now the lab-grown melee prices are, depending on who you talk to, they're either stable or going up, which is relatively rare for lab-grown diamonds, which, you know, the general long-term trend has for the prices to fall, but now they're starting to rise. It, it's it's become a desirable item. What's interesting is so many companies got into the large stone part of the business that the prices there are starting to look a little shaky. Some of these things are pretty secondhand, but one person said that with large stones and natural stones so difficult, with that market so hot, that a lot of companies are now buying lab-grown just to keep their factories going. And some of these companies don't necessarily know how to sell lab-grown because it's not their shtick, it's not their thing. So they're selling it for huge discounts. So it's kind of hurt that end of the market. So it's really interesting in that, you know, the diamond market has never been just one market it's always been kind of several markets that move in different ways. And now we have not only just one market that has all these many different components, but two markets. And th there is a, a relationship to them. Like, for instance, if the wrap list goes up, which it has been, that's good for the lab-grown market because a lot of lab-grown is sold off of wrap. So it firms up the prices there. But it's just very interesting and sometimes very tricky to get your head around all these multiple markets. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we have you on the case. It is complicated. It's not something you can walk in and really easily understand. One other bit that we have to note today, and it does have to do with diamonds, and it does have to do with Rob Bates, your expertise in diamonds. You had your second book published yesterday, February 8th. So tell us about it. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, it's called Murder is Not a Girl's Best Friend. The first one was called Murder is Forever. So I'm still trying to figure out the third title because I, I was really happy with those first two titles. It's a murder mystery. It has a lot of the characters from the first book. It's meant to be fun, lighthearted. It deals with some serious issues as far as, you know, artisanal miners and some of the social issues that the industry has dealt with. So there's some serious topics, but it's mostly lighthearted and it, it uses them as a backdrop for a murder mystery. And I'd be interested in people's thoughts on it. And um, I hope people enjoy it. Well, the first book was such a great read and it was super fun and, and really like a good, rewarding read. It wasn't just like an easy throwaway read. There was actually interesting information about the business and yay. Well, congrats. Super happy for you. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. That's it. See you, See you all soon. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Kay.